A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Yehuda Geberer with Jewish History Soundbites, and this part three of the history of the Jews in the Soviet Union this special series on the history of the Jews of the Soviet Union has been made possible by Shuvu Chazayin Avram Schools and is sponsored by Avram Biederman and Yassi Hach, co-chairman of Shuvu and dedicated in honor of the thousands of Shuvu Talmidim. So we're going to get into um, part three. The smallest things created Jewish identity and it became a very clear identity, whether it was cultural, whether it was based on their fifth line in their passport, whether it was based on some sort of nationalism. The Jewish identity was very strong in these different ways, whether it was because of Holocaust memory or even anti-Semitism. All these things, uh, you know, foster are factors in fostering Jewish identity in the Soviet Union during that time. I mentioned the passport, Soviet internal passports. There's uh, this um, Soviet law that 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 every you know you had to have an internal passport, not just to get out of the country, um, just to move inside the country, and it's for all kinds of regulation purposes that they had it. By the way, maybe the Israeli Tudat Zehud comes from that idea of uh, you know controlling the population by having these internal passports. But in any event, on the fifth line of that passport, um, they have the nationality line. And Jews, the nationality, it said Jewish, which is a fascinating concept because it didn't say Ukrainian, it didn't say Moldovan, it didn't say Georgian, it didn't say Russian, it didn't say Belarusian. It said Jewish. So you could be a Jew in Russia, you could be a Jew in in any country, any autonomous republic within the Soviet Union, a Jew in Ukraine, a Jew in, in, uh, in, in Georgia. In, in, in Kazakhstan, in Uzbekistan, in, in any of these places, uh, uh, republics in the Soviet Union, and your next-door neighbor will have Uzbekistan in his fifth line, your next-door neighbor will have Ukraine in his fifth line, his or her fifth line, and you'll have Jewish. And a thousand miles away in Moscow, the Jews' next-door neighbor will have Russian in their fifth line, and you'll have Jewish. So it's an incredible thing. Like, why, why did they do that? What did it mean? And the irony was, is that it reinforced Jewish identity, became a nationalist identity. It was not limited to a specific geographical area, and yet the Soviet government recognized it as a nationality. In many ways, this served as a, also as a vehicle for anti-Semitism. 
which uh, was officially illegal in the Soviet Union, but it still was latent, it was there. And imagine that in the United States, that a person is not an American, he's a Jew, he's different. It signifies difference. That's what that line screamed to both the bearer of the passport and to anyone who knew him or her. And this brings us to Soviet Jewish life in the 1960s and 70s. I mentioned this Rebarach Mordechai Lifshitz in the correspondence I cited earlier. He was known as Ramatul the Shaykhet, or the Moscow Shaykhet. He's born in 1916 to a harness Hasidic family in Kiev, but he was soon drawn to Chabad, and he attended their underground schools in interwar Stalin-era Kiev. He was involved with secretly and illegally building mikvahs, funding underground Temchei Tamimim Yeshivas, he was arrested in 1939 for his activities and exiled to Siberia, which saved his life because most of his family were murdered in Kiev during the Holocaust. He returns after the war. He eventually settled in Moscow, became a sheikh at a mile. He was trained at the Kol Yaakov Yeshiva that I mentioned in part two, and for several decades was one of the only sheikhtim and sources for kosher meat in all of the Moscow area. He also performed brises and built mikvahs, which were both illegal, the Shechita was legal, actually. He had an opportunity to leave, or at least to visit the United States and see the Rebbe, but the Lubavitch Rebbe did not allow him to come, like I mentioned earlier, because he said, while you're away, there's not going to be anyone slaughtering kosher meats. He had a responsibility to stay. He later trained other Shechitim under the communists. Um, and following the fall of the Soviet Union in 1993, he immigrated to the United States, settled in Crown Heights, and lived to the ripe old age of Ninety-seven. So you had Jews like that still living in Russia in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. But there were very few and far in between. In 1967, the Six-Day War in Israel has its effect on the Jews of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union and its satellites all cut off diplomatic relations of uh, with Israel because of the Six-Day War. Syria was considered a Soviet ally. Egypt was... Eh, somewhere in between, they officially were not aligned, but they did uh, receive, um, you know, their weapons and military advisors from the Soviet Union. So, uh, as a result of the defeat, um, they cut off diplomatic relations, and because of the euphoria that was went through the Jewish world, this led to a lot of the youth, the Jewish youth in the Soviet Union, to be reawakened somewhat to their Jewish identity and uh, to Zionism and to, to nationalism and all kinds of things like that. It's important to note, though, by the way, though, that there were, in general, this, this uprisings of revolts, rather, of youth around the world at this time. In the United States, it was because of the Vietnam War, the Civil Rights Movement. There were the very famous Paris riots of 1968, Paris student riots, violent uh, ones, and similar ones in Berlin and London, in other communist countries, the Prague Spring was in the summer of 1938. In Poland, there was the student political crisis in Warsaw. I'm sorry, it is 19, I say 1938? I meant 1968, of course. Um, uh, by the way, in Poland, that led to an anti-Semitic event when uh, most of the remaining Jews in Poland left the country after the 1968, the Gomolka Exodus, it was known as. So there's this worldwide phenomenon of youth counterculture, revolting, rebellious. Each country has their own reasons, but it is a phenomenon that's going on around the world. And I believe 
I probably have to research this more, but I believe that the Refusenik movement, the Jewish Refusenik movement in the USSR should be seen in that broader context as well. We tend to ascribe to it a strictly Jewish context, the Six-Day War, Jews want to leave, but it probably should be seen in that much broader scope. But the 70s do begin to see the beginnings of this Refusenik movement. The Refusenik's also called themselves prisoners of Zion. Refuseniks were those who applied for an exit visa to leave the USSR, either to go to Israel or to anywhere else. And not necessarily Jewish, by the way, these people who just wanted to emigrate. They're Refuseniks. So, you know, again, we think of it as an exclusively Jewish story. It definitely was not. But we're going to focus in Jewish History Soundbites on the Jewish aspect of it, um, because the Ukrainian Orthodox uh, Christians who wanted to emigrate and were also refuseniks is of less interest uh, to the listeners of Jewish history soundbites at this time, so we'll focus on the Jews of the Soviet Union. Why did Jews want to leave the Soviet Union, by the way? Well, there was anti-Semitism, like I mentioned, there's this surge of nationalism, uh, of Zionism slash nationalism after the Six-Day War, also, they're looking for more economic opportunity. There's also this uh, growing, and this is by the general youth of the Soviet Union, it's not limited to Jews at all, there's a general lack of belief in the future of the Soviet economic system, in communism, in Marxism. Their revolutionary fervor had cooled down somewhat over the decades. Um, between, but the, but the Soviet Union did not allow... Uh, emigration between 1960 and 70, a full decade, less than 4,000 exit visas were granted to Jews in the Soviet Union over the whole decade, not per year, over the entire decade. In 1970, something very significant took place, which was a catalyst for really the whole refusedic movement to get off the ground, and that was the Jimich Kuznetsov hijacking affair or the wedding. Uh, Operation Wedding or the Leningrad hijacking affair, however you want to call it. There was a group of these 16 dissidents, 14 Jews, two non-Jews, um, who decided that they're going to hijack a small plane and uh, fly out of the country to Sweden. And they didn't make it. And they were arrested and sent to jail, sent to Siberia. Um, so, so that became this major story, their trial and the fact that they were like going to really risk a lot by doing that, by stealing a plane, hijacking it and flying it out of the country. So really like, uh, you know, that's, that's a publicity. Um, and many people were electrified by that and joined the movement. By the way, one of the most famous refuseniks of all time, Yosef Mendelevich, who I'll get back to soon, he was on that plane. He was one of those uh, one of those dissidents. Um, he was 23 at the time. So we're talking about literally college students who are doing this. It's not a family people. It's not older ones. It's young kids, essentially. And Yosef Mendelevich, as a result of this hijacking, was sentenced to 11 years in prison. I want to profile uh, just a couple of the, some of the famous dissidents, refuseniks, Jewish refuseniks, because... You know, this was first of all, many of their names are famous, so they're known. And just to understand the story, and we'll see a common threads that that kind of go through all of their stories, and as well as the diversity, as well as the differences, and and you get a, a, a bit of a sense of what the Refusenik movement 
was about. First of all, the most famous one of all time was Anatoly Sharansky, later, later today's Natan Sharansky. He's born in 1948 in Ukraine, and he later moves to Moscow. He got a degree in university in applied mathematics. He was also a chess master, and he worked for a state research lab. Um, he applies for a, an exit visa, and it's denied in 1973 when he's 25 years old. Uh, when he's a dissident and a refusenik, he becomes a human rights activist as well, working with Andrei Sakharov and the Moscow Helsin Helsinki Watch Group. Uh, he was arrested in 1977 by the KGB and charged with high treason, which carried the death penalty. Eventually, he was sentenced to 13 years in prison, of which he served nine before he was released in a prisoner exchange in 1986. Another famous one was Ida Nudel, um, who was born in southern Russia. She decided to emigrate from the Soviet Union after hearing about the attempted hijacking that I mentioned. Unlike most of the others, she was a bit older. In 1970, she was almost 40 years old. She's denied a visa. She did a lot to assist other refuseniks. She made it her mission to help those others who were unemployed, who needed food, who needed all kinds of medical care and things like that. She lived in Moscow at this time and was exiled from Moscow, and later on she moved to Israel in 1987. Uh, Elio Assas, who is one of the most famous Balei Tshuva from the Refuseniks, he was born in 1946. He got a degree in mathematics from Vilna University, remember Lithuania is part of the Soviet Union as well. He got involved in human rights and rediscovering his Jewish identity while he was in college. He became a full-fledged returnee to Jewish observance and is considered one of the fathers of the Balchuva movement within the USSR, not ones who became religious after they immigrated, within the USSR, under the Soviet Union, under the communists. In 1973, he was denied an exit visa to Israel. He was 27 years old at the time. He lived in Moscow and became an architect of a brand new Orthodox community in Moscow made up primarily of Bali Teshuva. What he did is simply astounding. He's a Balchuva himself and he's building an Orthodox community in communist Moscow of the 1970s and 80s. In 1986, he moved to Israel. Yosef Mendelevich, who I mentioned, was born in Riga in Latvia in 1947. He formed a student group of underground Jewish education in uh, 1966, while he was a student at the university. Um, a year later, he participated in a Holocaust memorial event in his hometown of Riga in the Rumbula Forest. It was the Rumbula massacre during the war, wiped out Riga Jewry, and he decided at that point to adopt religious observance, and he participated in the hijacking attempt in 1970, which I mentioned. He's imprisoned for 11 years. At one point, he was in prison together with Cheransky, and they got to know each other. He arrived in Israel in 1981. By the way, he's also a historian and has published a book about the Cantonists, so that might be of interest as well. And then finally, we have Yuli Edelstein. Um, he was born in Chernovitz today, that's in Ukraine, in 1958. So he's a bit younger than the other ones. His parents converted to Christianity, but he was raised by his maternal grandparents who reinforced his Jewish identity. And he was further inspired uh, to connect to his Jewish identity and Jewish nationalism by Leon Uris's book, Exodus. So I guess something came good out of that awful book. But in 1977, uh, he's 19 years old. He applied to immigrate to Israel and was denied 
his exit visa, so he officially became a refusenik. He was soon expelled from university and harassed by the KGB. In 1984, he was arrested and sentenced to Siberia for three years. He was 26 years old at the time. Released in 1987, and he immigrated to Israel. Eventually, he joins politics, goes to the Knesset, and he was a very prominent member of the, still is, I believe, member of the Knesset. He was the speaker of the Knesset for many years and a big player on the Israeli political scene until today. Um, so it's important to emphasize, there's a lot of common denominators there. Their, their youth, and their fact that they were denied the visa and then arrested eventually on some sort of charge. Um, and also the, what, what sparked their interest in Jewish identity. The Holocaust was one. Other ones became, actually became Balei Tshuva um, and uh, Jewish nationalism, the Six-Day War, things like that. Um, it's very interesting. It's important to emphasize how young most of them were. They're basically in their 20s. These were a new generation of Soviet Jews. It was their grandparents who had experienced the revolution. And it was their parents, their parents, excuse me, who had experienced the war. Many of them in the Red Army. I remember reading about, in Fear No Evil, Sharansky's memoir, which is fantastic, by the way. So he uh, talks about his interrogations at the KGB. He's this kid in his 20s, and he's being interrogated by this uh, KGB officer. And... Um, and at one point, the KGB officer drops his facade and says in like this emotional way, you know, I, I fought in the Red Army during the war um, to save your people. In other words, the Jews during the Holocaust. Um, and and, and this, is your, this is your gratitude. This is your like Hakar Sataev. You know, you, you you're, want to leave the Soviet Union. You're an ingrate. You're being accused of espionage, high treason. And, you know, look what I sacrificed for. So Sharansky was not intimidated. He said, well, my father served in the Red Army also and was on the front. Maybe he did it for your children and your people. So he heard the words Red Army veteran, this KGB officer, and he says, what? Which, uh, which front was he on? Which unit? Which army? Which general? Who was his officer? <laughs> did he win medals? And all of a sudden he wanted to hack about the war. So, you know, that's that was what basically every... Everyone in the Soviet Union, if they're over 50, wanted to do in those days. <clears throat> so, talking about this is the new generation. They're the, they're, they're the, they're the third generation. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> they had grown up in the post-war as full-fledged, assimilated Soviet Jews. They only had a Russian or Soviet identity. They got a good education, relatively good opportunity as far as economic opportunity went in a communist society. And yet it was these kids who expressed the desire to leave, to immigrate to Israel and begin the movement against the government. They become dissidents and refuseniks. It's a very, very interesting historical phenomenon. Another point to consider is that they never encompassed large swaths of the population. Don't get fooled by the fact that I'm devoting most of this episode to refuseniks. It's only because I find it to be an interesting story. But this does not reflect the majority. The majority is a silent majority. Most Jews are, you know, they, they are, they're living their lives as Soviet Jews. We assume that since most emigrated, when the opportunity finally arose in the beginning of the 90s, and the 80s, beginning of the 90s, that most of them were refuseniks. It was actually a relatively small percentage of Soviet Jewry at the time, as it took lots of courage, and most of them had jobs and families and were quite settled. So the rank-and-file Soviet Jews continued living as they always had, and theirs is an important story as well. 
What was the process of becoming a refusenik and what were the consequences? So one first applied for an exit visa. Even if we assume that his request was granted, which almost never happened, one generally lost their job when they applied. They had to leave their assets behind. They often paid an exit tax and were stripped of their Soviet citizenship. Those were the lucky ones. But many were accused of all kinds of crimes that the KGB conjured up just for requesting a visa. This included either social parasitism since they had to quit their jobs when they applied, and that was a criminal offense in the uh, Soviet Union to be a parasite, because then they're living off society, they're not working. Um, Their denial of their application, their exit visa, was because many times it was given, the reason given was because they had access to state secrets. Sometimes they were accused of counter-revolutionary offenses, and in extreme cases, such as Sharansky's that I mentioned earlier, high treason, espionage, because of connections they had with Westerners or things like that, which carried the death penalty. So that was pretty scary. All the other ones just carried uh, prison sentences. So in most instances, the applicant was merely denied and they officially became a refusenik. In other instances, they were exiled from their home to the far reaches of the Soviet Union. And the worst case scenario was they faced, a, faced arrest, trial, imprisonment, and even exile to the Gulag. Um, so during the 1970s and 80s, there's these arrivals in the Soviet Union of American and Isra- sometimes Israeli emissaries who initiate contact with Soviet Jews. There's organi- organizations that spring up which are active during this time. Um, there's all kinds of prominent people and, and, and very important organizations uh, um, on behalf of Soviet Jewry in the United States, in Israel, during the 1970s uh, and 80s. Um, and this is, is they're getting involved in the internal Soviet Jewish life during this time. There's secret classes in, in Hebrew and Jewish studies, clandestine things going on. It becomes almost an entire underground movement of reinforcing Jewish identity, religious observance, um, and, and things like that. Many of these young Soviet Jews were not applying for exit visas. For many of them, it was just about, it wasn't about emigration. It was just about discovering and connecting with their heritage, with their, with their religion. And that's why they began to attend classes. Um, I think that, um, all these organizations, um, Chabad and Vadla Hatzalas Nidche Yisrael of Mordechai Nushtat and, Many other ones and activists like Ronnie Greenwald and the congressman Ben Gilman and people like Rabbi Avi Weiss and others. There's a lot of stories of American activism on behalf of Soviet Jewry. I think it's a fascinating and important story about it. But I believe that it stands on its own and merits its own episode because this episode is going to focus uh, uh, is focusing on Soviet Jewry itself. By the way, the Jackson Vanek Amendment uh, passed in the U.S. Congress in 1974. Um, was an attempt by Congress, which is usually less involved in foreign affairs, um, but it was a budget uh, 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 thing that made allowed Congress's involvement that um, to uh, to which assisted uh, Soviet Jews because it linked uh, foreign funding, which Congress is in charge of, to human rights abuses because the executive branch was not. Henry Kissinger, Nixon, and, and subsequent presidencies were not interested in in making such a link between um, you know, foreign aid or or favorable trade agreements linked to human rights records and human rights abuses. Whereas Congress went ahead and did that. Henry Scoop Jackson, very famous senator, 
um, and a great lover of the Jewish people, great friend of the Jewish people, um, and did much for Soviet Jewry through the Jackson-Vanik Amendment, which I'm going to get back to as well. Um, Holocaust memory and places like Babi Yar play a major role in reinforcing Soviet Jewish identity at this time. I mentioned that in part two. There is a, a limited religious life. Uh, Chabad and other organizations are active in trying to promote that. In fact, there's a rediscovery of Kivrei Tzadikim in the Soviet Union in the 1980s, uh, where people rediscover the cover of the Baal Shem Tov, uh, of Reb Nachman and Uman, Reb Yitzhak Silber, uh, the legendary one who kept uh, kept a religious life and strong in the 60s and 70s, he described going occasionally to Uman during that dark time. Um, so the question is, these refuseniks, excuse me, who are trying to leave the country, are they Zionists? Soviet Jews are Zionists? Or what was their point? Why did they want to leave? So many of them left for more mundane reasons, anti-Semitism, job opportunity, even... Uh, there were some small wars as the Soviet Union was collapsing in, in, in Georgia, Moldova, and other places. Um, so there's all kinds of reasons to leave um, the Soviet Union. And then afterwards, after it collapses, I once asked uh, an, an immigrant to Israel from, from the Soviet Union why they left. And I asked them if they consider themselves Zionists. And she said, yes, she was a Zionist. And she said, mundane reasons for coming, such as economic opportunity, does not contradict that because all, almost all rather, almost all immigration to Israel, even from before, even to Palestine, from the 19th century has primarily been for mundane reasons. Very, very few came for purely ideological ones, like in the second Aliyah, which is a fair point. So it's a combination of both, you know, economic opportunity, running away from anti-Semitism, and, uh, and nationalistic ideals. So the, the Soviet Union collapses at the end of 1991, in the month, the last months of 1991, and officially in the last weeks of December of 1991. That's when it falls apart, and it has a tremendous impact on Jewish life there. So I'm going to focus on one aspect, which is the emigration. This is the last great emigration, and it's primarily to Israel and the United States, and how these immigrants acclimate to their new surroundings. The scope of the emigration in numbers is simply astounding. Until 1970, it was nearly impossible to obtain an exit visa. Between 1970 and 1988, nearly 300,000 Jews in the Soviet Union emigrated, just over 50% to Israel and just under 50% to the United States. Why so many to the United States at that time? Because the Jackson-Vanik Amendment made it that Jews from the Soviet Union were considered refugees, which made it much easier for them to move to immigrate to the United States. Hence, many chose to do so. In 1989, Gorbachev lifted all restrictions on emigration. This is an important point, because it is assumed that the emigration was a byproduct of the post-Soviet era. But there were these three years of massive emigration while the Soviet Union was still around, 1989, 1990, and 1991. That's aside from the nearly 300,000 in the two decades prior, until 1989 that I mentioned before. Now, Vienna becomes a major transit point for Jews leaving the Soviet Union, as it had been, by the way, after the Second World War. But soon there's direct flights to Israel from the Soviet Union. In 1990, while the Soviet Union is still around, 228,000 Jews departed in that one year. In general, an overview, from 1983 to 2006, 1.6 million Jews left the Soviet Union. 
That's almost on the same level as the great immigration at the end of the 19th century. I mean, it's an astounding number. About a million immigrated to Israel, 325,000 to the United States, and 220,000 to Germany. Emigration continued after 2006, but it kind of tapered off, and it continues until today at a much slower pace. It's important to note that about a quarter of the ones who arrive in Israel were not considered halachically Jewish by the halachic criteria due to intermarriage, high intermarriage rates in the Soviet Union, but they were still eligible for Israeli citizenship under the law of return, which is, you know, it's another discussion, that's the complication of, com- of, of, of the clash between uh, re- religious identity and nationalism, but that's another, uh, that's a story for another time. In 1959, there were 2,300,000 Jews in the Soviet Union. It was the second largest Jewish community in the world after the United States, and way more in 1959 than the Jewish population of Israel. By the turn of the century, there were about a half a million only in the combined total of all former Soviet Union countries, and it has steadily decreased since then. So the question that we asked at this point, ask at this point, is this, is this the end of the Jewish story in Eastern Europe? And I want to give a broader scope on the little perspective on this last wave of emigration. Instead of viewing it within the context of the Soviet Union with a chronological framework from the 1970s and on, instead I'd like to take it an entire century back and view it from the 1870s. The Jews of the Russian Empire at that time were the largest in the world by far at that time, about 5 million Jews, and second place wasn't even close. Russia and later the Soviet Union retained either first, second, sometimes third place of the largest Jewish communities in the world until a full century later in the 1970s when it finally dropped. By the early 2000s, it had dropped to one of the smaller Jewish communities worldwide, still in the top 10, by the way, till today. So it's far from insignificant even today. But the Jewish demographics have fundamentally changed because of the large concentration of Jewish communities in the United States and Israel. That's for another discussion. Um, So what we have here is a 150-year period, approximately, of a dispersion of the Russian Jewish community in several ways of great emigrations, with the one in the 1990s as just the last big wave in what, over a century and a half, where there were several of them. Most of the Jewish people today is part of the Russian Jewish diaspora in one way or another, and the entire Jewish people of today is affected by it. Seen in this regard, the last emigration can be given much more historical significance. Eastern Europe was home to a great and dominant Jewish community for many centuries. So much of Jewish life that we have today, spiritual, economic, cultural, political, social, linguistic, communal structures, customs, norms, legacies, and traditions all come from Eastern Europe. And this last emigration of Jews from the Soviet Union and the former Soviet Union in the 1990s essentially brought this chapter of Jewish history to an end. Not the Holocaust, surprisingly, but actually it was the collapse of the Soviet Union and the great emigration which followed. Those who stayed, there were plenty who stayed, like I mentioned, there is a renaissance of Jewish and even religious Jewish life there. There's Ronald Lauder and and, uh, and Rukhaskel Besser partnered in in, in, in rebuilding Jewish life in, in Poland and also in many other areas of the former Soviet Union and their satellites. 
and many, many other organizations, which I'm not going to get into right now. What I want to get into is the immigrants, the immigrants who arrived in Israel, arrived in the United States, primarily in Israel. So there's organizations like Shuvu, um, which which were developed to accommodate them. Um, now, the... the uh, the Jews from the former Soviet Union and their integration into Israel is a fascinating story in itself. Are they socially, economically, politically, and religiously? And they leave a cultural impact on Israel because they retain many of their Russian and Soviet culture in their names, right? First names, right? They didn't adopt, many of them don't adopt Hebrew names as was so accepted in the earlier waves of immigration. Many of them still go proudly go by the names of Vladimir and Stas and Arkady and, and, and things like that. They retain their language, um, sports. They impact the uh, Jew, the Israel athletic scene very, very in a very big way um, with their value in sports and emphasis on it. Science. Um, the uh, they live in clusters in their own neighborhoods, retain their language and their culture. Have Russian TV stations, Russian newspapers, value systems, and they're very proud of their culture. In many ways, they saw it as superior to the one in their new home, especially in regards to the fine arts and music, sports, sciences, literature. Um, so this is a very different phenomenon than many of the previous waves of immigration that Israel received over the decades. And also it's the sheer numbers, which they had never experienced before. And they have a big impact on Israeli society in many ways. Just one tiny example. All of a sudden, World War II became a thing in Israel. Israelis only knew about the Holocaust. They didn't know about World War II at all. And all these, uh, in the 1990s, all these Red Army veterans show up in Israel. And now, all of a sudden, World War II becomes something. In the Western world, they commemorate the VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, on May 8th. In the former Soviet Union and their satellite countries, uh, they celebrated, on, they commemorated on May 9th, v- Victory in Europe Day. The only exception to that rule is Israel, which also does it on May 9th, because all of the veterans here, or almost all of them, are from the Red Army. There's marches in Yerushalayim on that day, there's a ceremony at Yad Vashem. There was recently a law passed in the Knesset, to make May 9th an official World War II VE Day. There's a monument on Har Herzl to Jewish soldiers who fought and were killed in the Red Army. So Har Herzl, which is supposed to be for the IDF and for and for leaders of the State of Israel as a military cemetery, there's a monument to Jews who got killed fighting in the Red Army during World War II. That only happens because of, you know, that immigration. Um, so that's in general. So now where does Shuvu come into that picture? So Rabbi Ram Yaakov Pam, who was the Rashiva Taravadas and emerged in the 1980s as a national leader in Agudas Yisrael and Chinuch and other organizations. So he, it's the Aguda Convention in November 1990. And a couple, in a day or two before the convention, Rabbi Ram Yosef Lazerson, the head of Chinuch is arriving in the United States for the convention, and he visits Rav Palm before the Aguda Convention, updates him about the immigration that's going on. Remember, November 1990, this is the peak of the immigration, and what's still the Soviet Union at the time, and and the challenges of convincing them or integrating them into Chinuchatzmai religious schools. Rav Palm responds by sitting for 10 minutes in silence, and then he explain, exclaims, Eich ele el avi v'hanar How am I going to go 
confront or, or meet, encounter or meet or my father, Vahanar, and the child is not with me. And this becomes his life mission. He becomes obsessed with it during the last years of his life. He gives it the name Shuvu, based on the Pasuk, V'doyrevi'i Yashuvu Heina, that the fourth generation from the revolution, from the revolution, returns to the Holy Land and also returns to Jewish observance that they were denied under the communists. He pointed out the irony that they'd finally be free from the communist repression of the Jewish religion and it'll continue with a non-observant Jewish lifestyle, non-observant religious lifestyle in Israel. How can we allow that to happen? We finally have an opportunity in the West, in the United States, to show that the United States Jewish community cares and can do something. So how can they sit on the sidelines and be indifferent to this historical opportunity that's now surrounding them? And in his mind, it was inconceivable. He even coined the slogan, Chinuch HaKodesh, Lezer HaKodesh, Be'eretz HaKodesh. A holy education, of religious uh, education, Lezer HaKodesh, the holy Jewish children in the Holy Land. And he recruited his trusted student, A. Biederman, to run the whole operation, and others involved with Max Knopf and the famous philanthropist Sheldon Barron in early funding, and Zev Wolfson becomes the greatest funder of the organization, and many, many, many others as well. I'm not going to go and enumerate all the names, even though I probably should for historical accuracy. Yosef Hach soon joined A. Biederman in running the entire operation, or Maisha Silberberg, and many, many others. The question was, at the initial stage, was how was this new organization going to be run? What is it going to be new institutions? What type of institutions? So first they fundraise, and then they send the fact-finding mission to Israel with all the money that they fundraise. So word gets out in the religious community in Israel that Americans have arrived with cash to distribute for religious Kiev among recent former Soviet Union immigrants. That's a dangerous situation. If religious Jews in Israel know that someone has cash, it's American money, it's a problem. So they needed to have something more organized than that. So in the end, they decided to establish it as an American organization, which would build its own independent school system, which was a completely unique niche. Uh, It was Rav Palm's idea, a bold idea, education. Invest in education, invest in schools for children. You have to understand how different the approach was. It was not to be evening classes for adults. It wasn't going to be university campus things. It was going to be a new school system. And it almost makes no sense in the Israeli context. There is no such thing as schools like that. There are religious schools, there's private schools for religious students, and there's the general public schools. There is no such thing as traditional religious schools for a secular student body from secular homes. It just, it's, it so doesn't make sense into the Israeli landscape. Um, and then he says, yeah, we're going to do it. I don't care. And this is going to be the solution, because if we have to go to the children, we have to go to the kids, we have to create an educational framework for them, and that's how it's going to work. So first, initially, it was part of Chinuch but gradually became a completely independent organization, and it stood on its own. Fundraising, staff, building schools, recruiting, gaining a reputation, uh, they hired a director in Israel who's actually still there, Mechai Michal Gutterman, who I had the privilege of meeting when I met him. I asked him to tell me a bit of the history, which he graciously did. And he related that he met a famous uh, former refusenik and a recent Balas Shuvu, who she's still alive and well and very active in Shuvu till today, Carmela Rise. And she looked at him at that point in the early 90s 
And, and she looked at him and Shuvu's mission with disbelief. She said, you'll never succeed. These people are so distant from Jewish observance. They're so assimilated. Why would anyone send their kids to your school? If it's a religious school, it's a private school, it's not the regular public schools. No one will ever attend your schools. By the end of Shuvu's first year, they had 1,100 students and it has been growing ever since. Summer camps, schools, high schools, working with the parents, what began to happen was that the children caused the home and the parents and siblings to change as well. They had an effect. The children brought it home, sometimes having a ripple effect on relatives and neighbors as well. Really an incredible revolution. The way they got many of them to come to the schools was by having a great general studies program. They have better general studies than everyone else, a better gym, a better chemistry lab, better extracurricular activities. Um, and, uh, and, you know, Jews from the Soviet Union are all into that. So that became a good incentive for many of them to send to the schools. And the, uh, the, you know, the religious instruction was a good byproduct of that. Um, that came to be embraced ultimately as well. Um, they get, you know, develop a relationship with the parent body and they become accredited over the 90s. They become accredited by the Ministry of Education and the municipalities. For a while, they were providing hot meals for their uh, uh, for their students who came, many of them came from new immigrant homes, were economically, um, you know, uh, living in poverty. They provided transportation. And, and Rav Pam decided that the main em educational emphasis in the schools should be Derech Eretz, which you have to understand how revolutionary that is for an Israeli school, religious or secular, that Derech Eretz should be an ideal. And that became the ideal for the Shuvu schools. And many parents sent to Shuvu schools also because of that. Um, and many of them were actually upset when they found out that their kid was becoming religious and, and starting to have an effect because that's not why they sent them to initially to the schools. But, you know, they, they came to accept it and, even, and very often even embrace it. Now, building new schools throughout the 90s and early 2000s very often faced opposition and different challenges were met. Adversaries sometimes became admirers. Budgets were expanded as the school system grew and proved its success. I highly recommend the book, by the way, A Tzaddik's Vision by Reb Shimon Finkelman, which traces the entire history of Shuvu from its inception until a couple of years ago when the book was published. It's really an incredible piece of history. I visited one of the schools in preparation for this series. I got to see with my own eyes. I asked these kids about their homes and grandparents um, and where they're from. And, and you see that this school has done for them. It's really witnessing history in the, in the making. It was kind of exciting to see it. Um, I read hundreds of moving stories, but to be honest, I'm not the type who reads or cares much for the inspiration genre, which is like the most popular uh, religious Jewish literature out there today. I don't really read any of that. But there were a few stories which stuck out because it, it, I saw in it the historical continuity, which that resonated with me a bit more. And I'd like to end off with just one of those stories. It was about a bar mitzvah of a Shuvu student that the Shuvu school made for the student. They, they made and paid for the entire celebration and they invited his completely secular assimilated family. They came, they all attended. And Shuvu buys him a pair of tefillin, and he puts on the tefillin at this ceremony. And then the elderly grandfather of the student gets up, and he says, starts to cry, and he says, I want to put on tefillin, because I once wore tefillin too. And he's, you know, this is in the 1990s, so an elderly man grows up shortly after the revolution at the time, and he had parents who were still from the pre-revolution, and they put tefillin on him. And he said, I once wore tefillin back when I first became 13, 
and I want to put it on again. I haven't worn it in, you know, God knows how long. We're together with my grandson at the ceremony. So he's wearing tefillin now. And a few minutes later, the father, the in-between generation, says, I don't even know what tefillin are. But I want to go along with what my father and my son are doing. And now all three of them put on tefillin together. And that's how the, you know, the, that, that break in the generations because of the revolution and the Soviet era are finally brought back together in Israel with Shuvu schools and many of these other great organizations. I think that's a great way to end in, in honor of Shuvu and in the wonderful work that they're doing, making history. And their dinner is coming up this Sunday, March 27th. I will post the links in the text of the episode. That pretty much sums up our three-part series on the history of Soviet Jewry. There's so much more to cover and delve into more in depth. If you like this series and would like to highlight a particular episode related to Soviet Jewish history or anything else for that matter, then sponsorships are available and you can be in touch with me about that at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com. So this was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehudi at YehudaGeber.com for sponsorships, uh, trips, and anything else. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites at Podbean or your favorite podcast platform and I hope you enjoy.